Hey there, listeners. This is Rod Gerardo from Wright State University. And in today's episode of the Wright State University Grand Rounds Lectures, we're going to hear from one of our chiefs, Dr. Casey Walk, and he's going to talk about dysphagia. Objectives we're going to go through a lot of anatomy from different types of dysphagia, different types of dysmotility, workups, management, and surgery steps. Um, there are some inflammatory infectious ones as well. Sounds like a lot of ground to cover. Why don't we just start off with the basics? Like, what is dysphagia? So dysphagia is actually having trouble swallowing versus odynophagia, which is pain. Uh, okay, is this like really common? People describe it over the age of 50, up to 35% of patients and 60% of nursing home residents uh, complain of this as well. There's two flavors of this. Okay, nice pun, Casey. So there's oropharyngeal. Uh, tongue swallowing side of this, like stroke. Uh, problems than esophageal. And that means like motor issues or anatomic problems that will make it difficult to swallow. Oropharyngeal um, is broken down into these are the different types. So there's oropharyngeal cancer, obviously neck radiation, compression. There's the craigopharyngeal diverticulums like Zankers. We'll talk about that. The myxenia gravis, which we don't have to remember ever again, and strokes, and then some inflammatory ones as well. And then the esophageal causes of dysphagia. Now we're a little bit more familiar with these. Think of like neoplasms or, you know, pyloric strictures, webs, rings, and then other issues further down like achalasia or esophageal spasm. And you can even get into things like, you know, scleroderma or uh, infectious causes for this. Casey, are there key components of the history or the physical exam that could maybe clue us in on which type of dysphagia we're talking about here? Immediate versus delayed. Immediate is, you know, they do that bedside swallow on somebody and that old person just starts coughing immediately. That's oropharyngeal dysphagia. Compare that to delayed dysphagia, which is probably esophageal. That's that sensation of, you know, food getting stuck or you have delayed regurgitation of undigested food. Which is different than a globus sensation which um, is not really a dysphagia-related thing. That's just a feeling of fullness in your neck. What about painful swallowing? Is not dysphagia, and that should be thought of more as infectious or um, caustic ingestion. More on how to work that up later in this podcast. The next thing is the localization. So interestingly enough, some literature supports that about 70% of the time, wherever the patient says they're having issues, after you're done with the workup, that's actually where their anatomic or motor issue lies. So listen to the patient. And then the last part. And then solids and liquids, of course, these kind of progress over time. Some are some present with both. Uh, some present over time where there are first solids and then liquids. And then onset as well, where if it's a dysmotility or intrinsic motor, it's going to take a lot of time to develop versus a cancer. It's going to be really quick. And then consider the physical exam. Now, for dysphagia, it's important to do a really good neuro exam because think about it. Do they have dysphagia because they had some sort of cerebrovascular accident or is there something else going on that you might need to investigate further? And then part of that physical exam, we don't actually do. It's the swallow eval that speech therapy helps us out with. And they go through a lot of um, liquid and solid swallowing and they call it wet and dry swallowing, just super gross. And I know that we don't do the swallow eval, but probably more pertinent to us is actually the manometry. And seeing the different pressures as somebody swallows. So for the oropharyngeal phase, the main thing to remember is that first 
big high pressure food bolus in the pharynx. And that's called pharyngeal pump. That is the real phrase where you get a lot of food basically in the back of your throat and your pharynx kind of pushes it through. So think about it. If they have dysphagia at that high point in the cricopharyngeus, that's probably a Zenker's diverticulum, right? Now we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves with testing here. Let's take a step back. Casey, if a patient presents with dysphagia, how's this workup going to go? What's the flow here? Like I said, if somebody's presenting with pain or there's a concern for infection or cause of congestion, um, you're going to do a flexible endoscopy. Then basically for everything else, you're going to do some sort of esophageal contrasted study, like a barium swallow. It's quick, it's cheap, readily available. You can easily see anatomy with that. Then you can do your upper endoscopy for these patients kind of like outpatient style. So that's when you want to evaluate the mucosa. You want to do biopsies. If they need an esophageal dilation or something like that. U.S. for cancers, there's a pH monitoring, things like the Meester scoring, impedance testing, which would test the other side of the pH. Manometry, which we're going to hit in a little bit here. Um, the one thing they talked about, the CAT scans, they wanted to talk about this dysphagia lusoria, which I've never heard of, but it's this lusorian artery here swooping around from the left to the right subclavian and it pinches down your esophagus. And the treatment for that is not an esophageal procedure. You need a carotid subclavian bypass for that. Lop that sucker off. That's your answer. All right, let's get into some real esophageal pathology here. First up, achalasia. What is it? It's the loss of inhibitory neurons in the aerobic plexus where you don't have relaxation down there. It affects both males and females at equal rates and the incidence is about one in 100,000. Their quote from the paper is ages 20 to 50, but also described in all age groups. Thanks. Now this will present late. I mean, the patients will probably come to the office already with regurgitation of food products of both solid and liquid, they'll have chest pain, weight loss. There are different types. Um, I've never been asked a question of different types on like abscite or the prep, but just in case you need to know it, um, I guess the worst prognosis is this one that has some spasmodic contractions. Um, but you guys can see the difference of these here. Um, basically, some, some of these respond to surgery, um, a classical achalasia response surgery, and the other ones do not. Now, the next step that you could do is manometry. These are kind of difficult to interpret. so. Casey, can you break this down? It measures their pressure over time. So you're watching somebody swallow over time. It's kind of difficult to describe over audio format. So I would recommend just Googling it on your phone while Casey talks you through it. But you can see that high pharyngeal pump pressure, gross. And then you can see this kind of negative pressure right afterwards in the oropharynx, like cricopharyngeus area, goes all the way down. And then you can see this high pressure here. This would be somebody having like an esophageal spasm. It shouldn't be that high. Then you can see your lower esophageal sphincter down low, but you can see the low pressure beforehand where the lower esophageal sphincter is open. Now, how is someone with achalasia going to look on their manometry? Just Google that first, and then here's Casey's thoughts. So you can see this green yellow along the bottom on that first one. So that's resting pressure there. The second one has this pan contraction through the esophagus through the whole thing. So there's not that nice swoop of a peristalsis through the esophagus. It's the pharyngeal pump followed by just kind of contraction everywhere. And then the last one is you have the high resting pressure at your LES, and then you have an esophageal spasm all at one moment. You don't have a good peristalsis. Then if you get, like we said previously, the barium esophagram, you're going to see the classic bird's beak sign. Google that. It's very classic for achalasia and testable. Mild conspiracy theory, that is if you believe birds are real, which I do not. Okay, let's 
get back on track here. What if you let this achalasia go on for too long? What can end up happening to your esophagus? So in stage achalasia, you get this sigmoid esophagus, which is also a gross term. I'm finding I don't like anything about the mouth at all. Um, but this is what um, some YouTube sages, uh, surgeons called it like in stage achalasia. And obviously we don't want it to get to this point. So how do we treat achalasia? Well, there's medical management. That's like calcium channel blockers, nitrates. Honestly, there's no meaningful benefit to using those. You can do Botox, um, but all the papers say that's really just safe for old people who can't have surgery. You could do esophageal dilations from an EGD. That's probably the most effective non-surgical option, but then you need like repeat treatments. So definitive procedure is going to be a, a heller esophageal myotomy with a dwarf implication or a poem if you're super fancy. Both have really good um, success rates. All right, Casey, how do we do a heller myotomy? Well, let's start with positioning. Right here, you're going to have a liver retractor, a camera, and then you're going to have an assistant, and then your two, your two working ports. Main steps. So first, we dissect out the hiatus. You're going to isolate your vagus and your anterior dissection, your myotomy, your fundoplication, and you're done. Pretty easy. Yeah, I guess easier said than done, right? Well, let's unpack this a little bit. So we get our camera port in, we get our working ports in, we're looking up at the hiatus, the liver retractor is re retracting the liver cephalad, right? Uh, what are we looking at? What are we going to do? Open up this lesser sac, your pores flaccid here and kind of get this esophagus exposed here to get to your cruise. So you're going to get this um, reflection opened up on your right cruise, or on your left cruise, and you see your vagus there. Make sure you isolate that. And if you're doing a door, you don't have to dissect anything posterior. So you kind of save yourself some time. And with your myotomies, you know you're coming down onto the stomach for a couple centimeters. But don't forget, you have two muscle layers here to think about. You have a circular and a longitudinal layer. Kind of get through that first layer, you'll see the circumferential layer, these uh, uh, circular muscle fibers. And once you get below that, that's going to be your mucosa. When you carry this down to the stomach, they're all going to kind of cross, and that's how you know you're at your GE junction. You want to carry that down further. This is, you know, this is you making your myotomy. You can actually see that second layer underneath it there opening up. Then to keep it open, what you're going to do is do this tacking suture through the fundus, through the cruse, and then through that myotomy site on the muscle, basically to hold it open so it doesn't just close and you did nothing. And then we're going to cover up that myotomy with your fundoplication. Then you can do a poem. That's a per-oral endoscopic myotomy. You go down EGD style, you um, inject the mucosa, kind of lifting it off, and they use dye. They get in there and they're dissecting out that circular muscle fiber, and they take that all the way down onto the stomach. Try and watch one of these procedures on YouTube, and you can get an idea of just how long this myotomy can really be. You could theoretically make it longer than if you did this laparoscopically or robotically. All right, let's move on to the next section. Moving on to motility disorders. First up, let's talk about diffuse esophageal spasm. Casey, what is it? It's really this intermittent dysphagia to solids and liquids, so it's not every single one. They describe it as periodic prolonged, multi-peak, high-amplitude contractions of more than one in five wet swallows. If they show you a barium swallow for this, this is where you see that quote-unquote corkscrew esophagus. All right, let's move on to nutcracker. Nutcracker esophagus is more the dysphagia or the swallowing problem related with chest pain. Okay, so chest pain, dysphagia, and then on manometry, they have these like super high pressures, like 
180 millimeters of mercury. Uh, and then hypertensive lower esophageal sphincter is, um, sounds exactly what it is. Yeah, not very helpful, but he's right. It's basically just a manometry finding of resting pressure greater than 45 millimeters of mercury at the lower esophageal sphincter. Um, the treatment for these is um, medications and balloons um, for the LES if you need to. Now, the other part that doesn't translate over well to audio, you're going to want to look up the images on the internet for how all of these look on manometry, because that is fair game for the test. And then the other thing to consider that we don't talk about is secondary reasons for motility disorders, and that's like scleroderma or something. So the treatment for those kinds of things is to treat the primary disease, and then that should help with the esophageal issues, the dysphagia issues. All right, let's move on to diverticulum or diverticula. Uh, esophageal diverticulum. Uh, this comes with some fancy words you guys need to know. True diverticulum, false diverticulum, that's all the layers versus not all the layers. And then traction and pulsion. Uh, traction would be something on the outside. It's, I don't know, the better way to describe this, something on the outside pulling it and pulsion is something on the inside pushing it, but they all sound like the same word. Um, but really there's one traction diverticulum you need to know, and it's also the only true diverticulum. So they kind of go together. In the mid-esophagus, it's a traction related to mediastinal lymph nodes. Not good, sounds cancery. That's the one you got to know. False diverticulum are the other two. So your zankers or your um, epiphrenic diverticulum where it's a dysmotility problem where the mucosa kind of balloons out through the muscle layers. Okay, so let's dive into these a little bit more. So the zankers diverticulum, that's your most common diverticulum. And that's the pulsion type. It's, it's the false type of diverticulum. And it happens at Killian's triangle. That's superior to the cricopharyngeus muscle. Um, people get a lot of gross symptoms, dysphagia, halitosis, where it smells like they're dead on the inside, um, and they have a mass, and they um, regurgitate undigested food, um, and they can have like aspiration, pneumonia, lung abscesses, weird stuff like that. Now, if you suspect a zenker diverticulum from these symptoms, don't get an EGD because you might perforate it. So you have to start with a barium swallow. So the sizes of these are important. Um, for treatment options, and I imagine for Apsite at some point. Um, things that are really small, you might be able to treat with just a myotomy and not cutting out. Anything between two and four centimeters, you have to do an open zanker diverticulectomy and myotomy, but anything over four centimeters can actually withstand um, the oral stapler, um, and you can staple it from the inside, which you don't need to do anything else, which is pretty slick. So. I guess wait until it's four centimeters. I don't know. <laughs> no, don't do that. Let's talk about how you would do an open approach to this. Um, you're going to get down to your esophagus, uh, same way you would do like a uh, carotid endarterectomy, you know, incision along the medial board of the SCM. You're going to get down by going through the omohyoid and you're going to move everything out of the way, all the important stuff, your, you know, carotid, all that, that stuff out of the way, and you're going to get to your esophagus. From there, you're going to be able to see this goofy diverticulum. So that's when you're going to do the myotomy of the cricopharyngeus muscle and the pharyngeal constrictors. Casey also mentioned if it's larger than four centimeters, you could staple across. Think of like a laparoscopic stapler. You put one jaw into the pouch, one into the esophageal inlet, fire it, and you're good to go. Um, and then you have your giant epiphrenic diverticulum, which is the distal esophagus. There's another pulsion, false type diverticulum, which is a dysmotility at the lower esophageal sphincter. So if you have hyper. Uh, 
hypertensive LES, something like that, you're going to build up this pressure of peristalsis against that over time. It's going to balloon out. And of course, they called it triple therapy because why not? What they mean by that is one, excision of the diverticulum, two, esophageal myotomy, and then three, an anti-reflux procedure. Mechanical obstructions. These are like webs, rings, strictures, esophageal cancer. So webs, they can either be congenital or they can be acquired. These are more like iron deficiency, plumber Benson's syndrome, and the treatment is of the underlying disease. Okay, what's the difference between a web and a ring? They are uh, found in the lower third of the esophagus, um, and they are sometimes not even symptomatic. They're just found incidentally. And Shotsky, I included a picture of a Shotsky down there. No, he's not talking about a Shotsky from like a bar. He's talking about the Shotsky ring that's at the Z-line associated with GERD. Now, histologically, these are covered with squamous epithelium. Um, you can have peptic stricture uh, associated with GERD. That's about 10% of people. Or they start getting this dysphagia over time. Anybody with GERD who's getting dysphagia, probably check them out a little closer. Um, and then esophageal cancer, of course. This will be a dysphagia with rapid weight loss. Now, esophageal cancer, that's a podcast all on its own. We can't get to that today, hopefully down the line. We'll just keep moving on with this lecture. The next portion is about inflammatory and infectious disorders. The first one up is caustic ingestion, specifically basic or high pH liquids. This causes a liquefactive necrosis to the esophagus and can lead to a perforation. Now, what's the first thing that you could do to kind of look at the extent of the damage to the esophagus? The immediate answer is endoscopy. Uh, you have to assess this and se the severity of the injury. Uh, perforation is always going to just be surgery. Uh, you might even need resection. And you're generally going to have problems in the lower esophagus because everything moves quickly and your upper esophagus is generally fine. And these will develop strictures over time, so if it's more severe, you might need a esophageal resection with colonic intercession. Eosinophilic esophagitis um, has eosinophils uh, in the esophagus. Wow. So this is an eosinophilic infiltration of the esophagus. This inflammation can lead to strictures down the road, and then these patients can present with difficulty swallowing. They get food boluses. That's scary because if you have a food bolus for too long, that can cause like a pressure necrosis on the esophagus. So you're going to treat these once you diagnose it, you're going to treat it with steroids. Then infections. This is more of a dinophagia. If people have that, think of infectious. You're going to do an EGD and see it anyways. And always remember when it comes to infectious diseases of the esophagus, or if you're concerned about an infection because of a perforation, you want to do not just the antibiotics, but make sure you give antifungal coverage as well. So there you have it dysphagia boiled down to like 20 minutes from our budding cardiothoracic surgeon dr casey walk you guys if you like this episode follow like subscribe follow us on twitter instagram facebook we have so many more lectures like this to give to you boiled down in this format with me rod gerardo general surgery resident at wright state university so until next time i'll see you in the next case